0: So this evening we're reading from Job chapter 38. Um, So starting at verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made the clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And then we go to verse 31, so just over the page. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule in the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust turns into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the ravens its prey when the young ones cry out to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong, they grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. And then we go to verse 26. So, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home. On the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away his young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God lets him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth, I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further.
1: Mostly, we'll look at 38 to 40, but we will have a little glance back at some of the things that go before that. And there's a, an outline in the service sheet. Let me pray as we begin. At the end of the book, in, in chapter 42, Job says, I, heard, I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Lord, we pray this evening that through your word, you would grant us that sight of yourself. Lord, please do what I am able to do through these chapters. Grant us a a sense of your majesty and our smallness in your world. Lord, we pray for uh, the outcome that Job reaches, a stillness before you and a trust in you that doesn't know everything that knows enough because we know the one whose hands uh, we are in. Lord, please do that among us. Um, please use this passage in our lives and all that we face and all the people around us who, who we long to advise and be a help to. Lord, please use this passage. Please would it accomplish your, uh, your work in our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. all of us will have seen, or perhaps been a part of, an argument that never really seemed to reach a satisfying end. So on the radio sometimes, they have that kind of interview, a debate, where somebody gives one side, and then somebody else gives the other point of view, and what's the answer? We don't really know. Somewhere in the middle? It's not clear. Or in politics, I um, quite enjoy... um, watching Prime Minister's Question Time from Parliament. I mean, it's not sometimes quite childish, but um, it's quite entertaining. It's like a boxing match between the two leaders. But there is very seldom a knockout blow. Whatever one of them says, the other one always seems to have a comeback. If one of them has brilliant facts and figures that seem to make the case, the other one's got other facts and other figures that seem to lead in a different sort of a way. There aren't really any conclusions. And it's hard to learn from that kind of an argument. It's hard to land on any solid conclusions. But imagine an argument that was so powerful, it compelled silence. Imagine that in the House of Commons next week on Wednesday. One of the leaders just says something. And the silence. And the other leader looks across the dispatch box and just hangs his head a little bit and puts his hand on his mouth. What we've been seeing in the book of Job probably, if you're like me, probably has felt a little bit like one of those arguments that doesn't really come to a satisfying conclusion. Job has spoken, and then his three friends have challenged him, they've accused him of different things, and then Job has defended himself, he's hit back at them. And the three cycles, that's how the book has carried on with no agreement. And it's all become more and more bad-tempered, generating more heat than light. That's what we've seen in the book. But now, as you come to the end, something is said by someone that brings all discussion to a close. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And what the Lord says leaves Job speechless. Over the page, but, uh, chapter 40, the end of what Sarah read, Job says, Be- um, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. What we have from the Lord here is almost literally a knockdown argument. Although we'll see as we go on that it isn't really an argument at all. After all the words in this book, after all the to and fro, this is what settles it. Which is a huge claim when you think about the subject matter of the book. Job, as a man, was hit by tragedy in his life, about as hard as it's possible to imagine for a human being. He lost his children, his wealth, his home, his health, his security, even his reputation. And so the questions emerging from that are some of the biggest that human beings have ever grappled with. Job asks, why? Why has God allowed this? Why is this happening to me? His three friends have said, well, isn't that the way the world works? Don't people always end up with what they deserve? And Job has protested his innocence. He, he asks, well, isn't this unfair? Isn't God being unfair? These are some of the big questions. And they're questions that we ask, aren't they? When our job is under threat, when your health goes, when you face heartbreak, we naturally wonder, why, why has this happened? How could God have let this happen to me? Is it because of something I've done? These are really big questions. And at the end of the book, finally, we're going to reach some sort of a conclusion. Now, part of the way it works is that finally at the end of the book, we find out who's been right and who's been wrong. That's one of the confusing things about the book of Job, is you have these cycles of arguments between Job and his friends, And it's really not clear who's right and who's wrong. But finally, at the end, God says, if you look over to chapter 42, verse 7, it's a very important verse in the book, 42, verse 7, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, that's the first of the original three friends, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And we think, ah, okay, that helps the view that they've been putting forward that everybody gets what they deserve that's not right says god at the end of the book what the friends have been saying is too simplistic bad things really do happen to good people it's helpful to know that partly though it's not though that job has been 100% right himself in all of this if you look on still in chapter 42 but verses 5 and 6 um After God speaks to him, Job is silent, as he said, and he he says that he repents. He regrets some of the things that he has said. And so we have this clarity at the end, that the friends have been wrong. Uh, Job has been partly right, partly wrong in what he said, and in accusing God of being unfair, he hasn't been right. Partly that's how it works. It's like um, a teacher with a book, and God says, Tick over a lot of what Job says, and cross over a lot of what the friends have said, and we finally get some clarity. But the other way that this end of the book works is that the Lord himself speaks. and There are two speeches that God makes, and we're looking at the first one this evening, and then Andy, to finish things off next week, is going to show us through the second one. The Lord himself speaks, and at last we get some clarity. However, just before we get into all that, there's the small matter of chapters 32 to 37. That's what we didn't look at last week. If you look at the very beginning of chapter 32, you'll see that a whole new person, a whole new character in the story bursts onto the scene. as a young man called Elihu. Follow along with me from the start of 32. So these three men cease. that's the original friends, that um, they ceased To answer Job, um, because he was righteous in his own eyes, that just means he's refusing to admit their accusations that there must be some secret sin that's causing all the suffering in his life. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak because they were all older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barachel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But is it the spirit of a man the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. So this late stage of the book, after the three cycles of dialogue between Job and his friends, we get this new guy, a young person, Elihu. He's been silent so far, out of respect, but now he lets rip. And he's critical of Job, he's critical of Job's friends. And his speeches, it's the longest speech in the book, it presents us with a real problem because we never find out from God at the end whether he's right or not. We never get the cross or the tick. And so we're left to figure it out for ourselves, which isn't easy to do. What are we to make of Elihu? If I'm being honest, I don't really know. Um, I, I have tried this week, I spent a good bit of time on it, but I don't really know. Um, a lot of people view his contribution quite negatively. Um, for starters, he probably just, even in the short bit I read, he, he says a lot about how angry he is, which is not in the Bible often uh, a kind of a position of wisdom, it's not really a, a wise thing to be an angry young man. He, he describes himself, if you look down at um, 32 verse 19, um, it's like he's a champagne bottle that someone's fizzed up and he's ready to pop, and he doesn't really sound like the wise, measured speech. Um, perhaps more seriously, adding to this negative view, it's possible to interpret his words as largely backing up what the friends have said about the moral order of the universe. So if you look on to chapter 34 and verse um, 10, There is more than one way of looking at this, but a lot of people argue that he's he's broadly saying what the friends have been saying. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. You could argue that Elihu is, is just another certainty merchant making the same mistakes as the friend, saying that what goes around comes around, and that's how the universe works. And so maybe the fact that God doesn't mention him at the end of the book is because he's not worth bothering with. That's the kind of negative view of Elihu. But other people who seem equally scholarly and otherwise reliable have a much more positive view on Elihu. It's dreadful when wise people can't agree. You don't know who to listen to. Uh, For example, if you wanted to make the positive case, a lot of what Elihu says against Job is not the same as what the friends have said. The friends have been accusing him of some secret sin that must have been the cause of all his suffering, and that's not what Elihu says. Rather, Elihu has been saying that Job shouldn't have said harsh things against God, shouldn't have made the charge that God was unfair. And as we've seen at the end of the book, That's what Job says. Job agrees with that. He says, I repent of those things that I had said. So maybe what Elihu is saying isn't quite the same as the friends. And also, especially in chapters 36 and 37, a lot of what Elihu says is lifting up the majesty of the Lord, the Creator. And it's very similar to what God himself says in the passage that we're looking at this evening. So maybe Elihu is at least partly right. Or maybe he's completely right. Uh, Some commentators even say that um, he, he speaks here at the end of the book as a kind of a prophet preparing the way for the Lord and what he will say. So if you look again at the start of chapter 32, you could get that impression that he's claiming to speak from the Spirit of God. It's not just him speaking, but the Spirit of God within him giving breath to his words. Now, as I say, I'm not really sure what to think about this. It's a bit confusing. But I wonder if that's the point. It's worth remembering that God has inspired not just the words of this book, but also the form and the arrangement of it. Suffering for us is a confusing, a bewildering, a drawn-out experience. And so it's no surprise that God has given us It's no accident that God has given us a confusing, drawn-out book in some ways. That's what I would say about Elihu. So, let's move on. Let's look back at chapters 38 to 40 that Sarah read, which is a lot clearer, because here at last, the Lord speaks. Here at last are words we know, we can rely on and let's see what he says in answer to those painful questions of job starting from verse from uh, the start of chapter 38 then the lord answered job out of the whirlwind and said who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge dress for action like a man i will question you and you make it known to me well, there you go. Has that for pastoral sensitivity? As God says to this man who is hurting, uh, he's not, as he speaks to Job who is hurting, he's not on the back foot, he's not seeking to go on the defensive and explain his own position. The Lord asks Job a question. In fact, he asks him two. They're on the sheets. Let's work through them first. The Lord asks Job, Were you there when I created the world? Were you there? When I created the world, verse 4, you can see that. Where where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? the Measuring line. I don't think surveyors use them anymore. They have those tripod things that you look at, and that's what this is saying. On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Where were you, Job, when I made the world? It's a rhetorical question, and I think it's intended to help Job see two things a little bit more clearly. First, the Lord. Try to imagine what some of this poetry is talking about. When God laid the foundations of the mountains, when he measured out the vast expanse of space, When the angels saw the universe exploding into being and they shouted for joy at the beauty of it and the wisdom of it. Or verses 8 up to 11 make us think of the immeasurable expanses of the oceans, the clouds. And then you think of the God who made it all. This is poetry to stretch Job's vision of God And also, secondly, second thing, it helps Job to feel his own smallness. See God a bit more clearly, see himself a bit more clearly. I think that's why the Lord puts this as a question. Where were you, Job, when I did these things? He asks it as a question, because he wants to make a contrast. Job is just a man. He is small. He is finite. He wasn't there he doesn't know now remember the sorts of questions that all this is supposed to be answering in the face of his suffering job has cried out why i must know what's happened i must know why all this has happened to me and he's accused god in uh, in the words of chapter 9 job has said that god mocks the calamity of the innocent and has blinded justice in this world Those are the questions. Why is this happening? How is this fair? Those are the questions. And what God says in response is, where were you when I created the world? I wonder what you think of that as an answer. I wonder if you think it is an answer. Well, before we get into all that, let's uh, look at the second question that the Lord asks of Job. He says, do you know, Job, how I run the world? From, from the end of chapter 38, broadly, the poetry moves from the creation of the world to its ongoing management, maintenance. First, there are the four S's. God talks about sun, sea, sky, and stars. Sun. God asks him, is it you, Job, that wakes the sun up every morning and brings it out, to rouse the world? Do you know where it goes in the west, far in the west when it sets? Do you know where that is? Surely you do, Job, being so old and so wise. Sun, sea, God asks him, have you walked across the raging oceans, Job? Do you know what's down there? Sky. Uh, In verse 22, the poetry pictures storehouses in heaven filled with snow and hail. It's all up there and there are water jars just waiting for God to throw it all down on top of us. And also the lightning. If you look over the page, verse 35, there's this wonderful picture of the lightning bolts reporting to God for duty, waiting for him to assign them their targets and cast them down to the earth. Do you understand all that, Job? Sky and then stars. Have a look at verse 31, please. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Do you know how it all works, Job? What keeps them up there? Can you establish their rule on the earth? As modern readers, it's, we need to be careful how we read this. It might be tempting for us to think, well, actually, we do understand a lot of the things that Job is talking about. But even if we do, that's not really the point. The way this is written, it's not really talking about apprehension so much as mastery. They're not your stars, are they, Job? They don't do what you tell them. It's not your sea, it's all mine. There's God the modern knowledge we have in fact it doesn't take away from this at all I think it rather adds to it the fact that we now think in terms of billions of years billions of miles the fact that we have seen some glimpses of what is down there at the bottom of the oceans just think about the concept of of a light year for a moment it's a clear night tonight (laughs) Um, I suppose a lot of us will know what Orion looks like, the constellation. I don't really know anything about um, stars and things, but you know, if you're out on the beach, with especially with um, smaller children, it's very important to sound knowledgeable. And um, I guess many of us will be able to identify Orion with his belt and his sword. I'm told that when we look at Orion, we're not seeing Orion as it is right now, but how it was 1,500 years ago. <laughs> Because that's how far away it is. That's how long it takes the light from there to get to here. So when people in Scotland were all shooting each other with bows and arrows and things, that's how long ago we're seeing Orion from, because that's how far it is. You get your head around that. It's a bit like time travel. It's so far away. You and I are specks on this enormous rock, flying through space. It's like we're plankton in an ocean over which God rules and over which he says, this is mine, every inch of it, I know it. I know what is going on here. It is mine. After the four S's, as you move uh, from 38 into 39, God moves on to the, the wild animals There's so much wonderful poetry here. It starts with the lion in chapter 38, verse 39, and it moves on to the raven, the mountain goat, the wild donkey, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, and then the hawk. And the writer describes these wild animals. And each time he's asking Job, do you know how I run this world? The point is these are wild animals. Human beings don't feed them. Nobody trains them. They don't get veterinary care. We can observe them, but we don't really understand them. But God does. He knows all the business of every single one of them. He knows where they live, where they sleep. He sees them giving birth, feeding their young. If you look down at um, verses 13 to 18 of chapter 39, the bit where it talks about the ostrich is a particular highlight. He kind of mocks this silly bird with long legs and a a silly neck. And he says it, it just lays its eggs on the ground, even though anyone might stand on them. She's not the smartest creature, verse 17. God hasn't given her the biggest brain. But, verse 18, you should see her run. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider. Even this most ridiculous animal, we don't understand it. But God does. He's made it and given it powers beyond us. We could think of it a little bit like this. Often in life, we are forced onto unfamiliar territory. Perhaps you, you go and see someone or pick something up in a part of town that you don't know. And, you know, there's parts of town, you just know your way, you drive there. Um, other times, you have to get the sat-navel, the A to Z out. Unfamiliar territory. Or well, you might have to go to another city for work. And again, you, you have to think it through. You think there are, there are locals here, people who know this like the back of their hand, but I, I don't, I've never been here, I don't know this. Or sometimes we go abroad, and that's the point, that's part of the fun, of exploring somewhere new, somewhere strange and foreign that we haven't been before. Sometimes we even go somewhere really remote. If you're that kind of holiday thrill seeker, you go to the safari or Antarctica or something like that because you want to go somewhere really unusual, unknown. But God is saying that He knows every inch of land, everything that happens. The Google Earth has no surprises for God. He can zoom in even further and the picture doesn't go all fuzzy. Every ant, every antelope, every fish, every bird, every ostrich is individually known to him. He knows it like the back of his hand. Wherever you end up, God is the most local of locals. He knows it like the back of his hand because it's his. That's how I see the world, God says to Job. What about you? It's not a really clear answer to the questions of the book, is it? It's not a step-by-step explanation as to why these things happened in Job's life and how God is not guilty in allowing them. Those kinds of answers do exist. A lot of them are given, if you remember, all the way back in chapters 1 and 2, a lot of them are given in that narrative section of the book which explains the interplay between the Lord and Satan Job never gets to hear any of that. When God finally opens his mouth to speak to Job, he doesn't talk about that. Instead, what he does is he gives him this reminder of who he is, this reminder of whose world he's living in. We weren't there when he created the world, we don't know how he runs it. God is bigger, bigger, so much bigger but we are in his hands. Perhaps, rather than answering Job's questions, it's a little bit like the Lord here is saying that those were the wrong questions. Or that, perhaps it would be better to say that Job's the wrong person to be asking those questions. The right question for him, for us, the right question for us to be asking is what is God like? This is a book that expects us sorry, that warns us not to expect, ever to feel like we really know what's going on. Oh, yes, I know what God is doing. I know how the universe works. It's warning us not to expect that. We won't see clearly the architecture of this universe, but we can know the architect. We won't know why, but we can know who and when we get the force of these chapters this poetry when we see god clearly and see ourselves in the light of him a little bit more clearly that is a kind of an answer these are rotten chapters to have to preach about because the point of them is not to understand me explaining it but the point is to feel them to let the Force of the poetry hit us. And that's really up to each of us to dwell on this, to think and listen, to let it hit us. It's like they tell uh, school pupils, isn't it, about creative writing. Don't use adjectives which merely tell the reader how to feel about the thing that you're describing. Instead of saying something is terrible, so describe it that the reader feels <gasps> how terrible don't say it was wonderful, but write about it in a way that makes the reader exclaim, wonderful. It's not easy to speak about these chapters. But what we need is a vision of the God that they portray. It's great that it's a clear night this evening. I don't know where you live or what your drive home is like, but try and get a look up at the stars. And think about these verses, the climax of the book. So vast, so many of them, so far away. And every inch of it is known by God and held in place by him. We are so small, but we are in his hands. And when we see it, final point there on the sheet, start of chapter 40, when we see it, There is silence. It's not an entirely comfortable silence, but it's not without a sense of hope in God. It's a steady silence from Job, a secure silence when he sees something more of God and something more of himself. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. That's where this book leaves us. As we grapple with those sorts of questions for ourselves. As we seek to help others who are grappling with them. It doesn't explain everything, all the whys and wherefores, but it points us to the glory of the who, the God who is over all things, who made all things, and who will in the end make himself plain. Let's pray. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Almighty God, we ask that you would grant us from your word this evening and from this world as we experience it, we pray that you would grant us that sense of your majesty and magnitude and wisdom of eternity. And Lord, please help us to see, to feel our own smallness. Please humble us before you, not in a way that shames us, Lord, but in a way that steadies us and makes us secure. Please help us to feel that we are creatures in your world, known by you and in your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.